This is State of Water. This is State of this Water. This is State of Water. This is State of Water. State of Water coming at you right now. State of Water, a podcast focusing on clean water issues and their relationship to policy, equity, community, and climate. Featuring captivating interviews with Michiganders from many walks of life, State of Water is the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan, a program of the nonprofit organization Title Track. Hey, this is Jenny from Title Track. If you resonate with what you're about to hear, put those feelings into action. Take the first step toward getting involved by going to titletrackmichigan.org slash contact to sign up for our mailing list. Welcome back, friends. Thanks for lending your ears. Earlier this year, Seth Bernard sat down with Jill Ryan, Executive Director of Freshwater Future, for a really inspiring conversation Jill shares stories and insights from working both at the policy and community levels, thoughts on the essential role of arts and culture in this work, and so much more about her work and philosophy and Freshwater Future's commitment to ensuring the health of our waters. Before we dive into this conversation, we want to make sure all of our listeners know to look out for new episodes of State of Water dropping each Tuesday through the end of 2022. Check out our socials for a sneak peek at the wonderful guests that we have lined up in the coming weeks. And as we head to the end of the year, we'd like to extend an invitation to consider supporting this essential work. Visit freshwaterfuture.org. Visit titletrackmichigan.org. Check out the programs. Consider volunteering. Consider contributing financially. There is so much work to do, and we are here for it. Thanks so much for your support and for being a part of it. Without further ado, let's listen in to Seth Bernard's conversation with Jill Ryan of Freshwater Future. Good morning, Jill. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Seth. It's really great to be here. Thank you. So it's wonderful to finally meet you having communicated and having had our organizations collaborate on things like the Waters Life Festival I'm a huge fan of your work. And for our listeners out there, could you give a little background on what you've been up to with Freshwater Future? Absolutely. I've been with Freshwater Future for 23 years, which seems incredible at this point in my life. We're an organization that really helps other groups do their work and meet their missions, especially local grassroots on the ground efforts. And so Freshwater Future works for about with about 2,000 groups around the Great Lakes. So we work in the eight Great Lakes states plus Ontario. And much of our work over, especially about the last decade, has really turned to focus on drinking water. And that is such an important community aspect. So we work a lot with communities that are having difficulties meeting lead standards. So they have lead lines and they're have high lead numbers, but also issues like PFAS, where there are proposed or actual mines, working on those permitting processes and making sure they're actually following their permits. And then, so we take all of that sort of community work and then try to also take a 
10,000 foot view of that to say, okay, here are some common issues where a policy solution might be helpful. How do we push for that from the community level and get our big policy colleagues to help push for that as well? And we do that all through through a few different pots of work. We're focused on providing grant funds. So we give out money. We provided over $5 million over the year. We also provide consulting. So our staff has over 100 years of experience running nonprofits. And so we do a lot of consulting with our groups to make sure that they're prepared. And then we also do this policy work to try and make sure that we have the best rules we can at the local, state, and federal level that that help us secure the winds for water that we need. Wonderful work. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. I'm curious to hear more about these policy solutions because it seems like it's such a big issue to allow solutions to come from the ground up. So what does that look like for you working with people at the community level and policymakers? Yeah, so current example would be all of the infrastructure money that's coming due to our experience with COVID. That's a federal effort. And so we've been working at the federal level, trying to influence the asks to Congress so that they would reflect what we know from decades of working with communities. And so that became things like making sure that these dollars that are going to flow are equitably distributed. We need to make sure we're not just exacerbating old historical harms. So, for example, if You have a community that's living with a lot of environmental injustice, where they've had a lot of environmental health issues that cause human health issues. That community should get a little leg up when they're trying to apply for dollars. Also, those communities, for example, that are disinvested over time, a lot of racially diverse communities, for example, have had a lot of periods of disinvestment. And so how do we ensure that it doesn't continue through this process? So we've worked with groups to create some basic principles around some of these issues. So rather than starting from what we can get out of the legislative body, we really tried to start with the community and find out what do the communities need. And so around this example, we worked for about 22 months with some about 15 groups on the ground to come up with principles about how you create affordable water. And as you do that, what are the things you can't give up? Because as we look for policy and solutions, there's always this back and forth and how do you negotiate? And we have to know what's not negotiable from the community perspective. What really needs to be the firm bottom line? So that's one of the ways we create these sets of principles with community, and then we drive those up to the federal policy and state policy making tables and try to make sure that those stay intact as the negotiating happens for those solutions. Fantastic. So you mentioned working with eight states and Ontario, and I'm very interested in this because international cooperation is so important to the health of the Great Lakes. And yet it's something that so many groups don't really engage in or avoid engaging in because it seems complicated. 
how does that look for freshwater future? And could you share maybe a win in that you've experienced with international cooperation? Yeah, absolutely. It is really critical. And I think the Great Lakes are a great example to look at because they're obviously a multinational resource. So we have First Nations around the lakes. We have the Canadian, the country of Canada. We have the country in the U.S. And all of those nations have a stake and have to negotiate on those things. So we really look at that as a great example of how we cooperate. So there are some agreements between the main countries of U.S. and Canada. They don't always give the same rights to our First Nations, so. Um, but those are things like the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement. Unfortunately, some of those agreements, though, like the Water Quality Agreement, so they're great tools, but we just have to be understanding of what the procedural pieces are because you can't go to those agreements and then come out with a court decision, for example, because they are non-binding. But those are huge, great places where we can look at things that have been agreed to by the countries and say, you're not meeting up to your agreements. So you don't have to necessarily go out and look at the every piece of binational landscape. But if you're impacted, for example, by waste, the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement says there will be no waste streams to Great Lakes. And so there has been a campaign for a long time that zero means zero. We should not be creating new streams to the Great Lakes. And so if those things are happening, you at least have this great backdrop of multinational agreement. And it's coincidentally, this is going to be the 50th anniversary of that uh, signing of that agreement. So there will be some celebrations. I think that that's really cool. And for us, as we look to make sure we can all work together across these boundaries, we do coordinate something called the Great Lakes Network. And so that's a place where people can come from all kinds of organizations and individuals and learn about what others are doing across boundaries and how they can work together and how we can all bring our resources together. So that's a set of about 70 groups uh, across both countries that really is a success in that we're able to bring issues to that table, see if somebody's already working on it, and then raise that issue among all of those organizations, help each other to move issues forward. And one example that of something that's come from there is you may know that in the U.S. side, we've gotten about over $6 billion from the federal government to clean up the Great Lakes. There hasn't been a counterpart to that in Canada. And so through the Great Lakes Network, we were able to start a process where the federal government in Canada is starting to invest specifically in the Great Lakes with regular amounts of money. And so those sorts of things are huge, in my opinion, because you're actually moving those large governmental structures, but in order to create change at the community level, <clears throat> especially with the Great Lakes have, through these agreements, we have identified the worst toxic hotspots called areas of concern. And so a lot of these funds are trying to 
clean up those areas of concern and return them to being more healthy both for humans and the resource. So those types of things are really making positive changes in specific communities. And one example is I know that Waukegan Harbor in Illinois, for example, they've been working on cleaning that up for decades, and it looks like it will be taken off that area of concern list soon. And so those types of things of bringing in the money, getting people coordinated, and really focusing in on community needs really is the kind of success that we hope for, and we see it sometimes like this. Wow, that's fantastic. So this is, and you're doing work on a large scale, and it sounds extremely dynamic. Can you, can we like get on the magic carpet and go back in time to the origins and take us to how Freshwater Futures scaled up to where it is and what the beginnings were like for you? Yeah, fresh, Freshwater Future used to be called something different. It was the Great Lakes Aquatic Habitat Network and Fund. <laughs> and that was started in 96, a few years before I came on at the tip of the Mint Watershed Council in Northern Michigan, in Northern Lower Michigan. And they created this thing because they were only working in four counties at the top of the Lower Peninsula. And they figured out very quickly that they couldn't protect that place because it's surrounded by Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, unless other Great Lakes communities were also going to protect their places. And so it was really an effort to try and broaden the ability for communities around the Great Lakes for everybody to raise all boats so that we're all benefiting from each other's processes. And through that, they figured out that what communities really needed was a little bit of money and some connections to expertise through networking and other things. And also this kind of overarching connection. And those really are the same three things we work on today. So that's where we started. They typically incubated this for about 11 years. And then we took it on the road, so to speak, in 2006. We spun off, very amicable spinoff. And that from that point really started to grow. As you can imagine, it's hard to raise funds for a region-wide effort if your platform is working in four counties. <laughs> and so we re- we just recognized that we needed to be able to expand. And so they they were so helpful in creating this thing. They're, they are very visionary. And so at that point, we had... <laughs> Two staff people, we had about a $250,000 budget a year um, from one one funder. And we took that on the road and struggled to learn the lessons of how you do this work. But we did, and I'm really happy to say that we've expanded the work, I think, in ways that really reflect what our communities want. And we now have 12 staff working across the region in different locations, and we've increased our budget by about sixfold. And we've always kept true to the idea that we need to give a lot of that away. So we continue to try to give away about a third of what we bring in so that we're truly giving to the community and we're helping to be a conduit for getting those funds down to the community level. Wow. Thank you for that. Thank you for the 
overview. And that makes sense holding on to those three principles, but being able to scale up and in doing so touching more communities and engaging with more groups, 2000 groups is phenomenal. And so just on the topic of drinking water, Jill, part of the reason why we started this podcast is because the nature of the mass media, it's rare for environmental issues to get news in the first place. And when they do, it's fleeting. It's part of this trendy news cycle. And so we, several years ago, the Flint water crisis was in the national news, the international news, the Detroit water shutoffs got a lot of press. Here we are years later and affordable, safe drinking water remains a huge obstacle for so many people in Flint and Detroit and in so many other communities throughout the region. Can you give our listeners a snapshot of what you're working on now in terms of supporting people to have clean, affordable drinking water in cities across the region? Absolutely. Yeah, you hit it right on the head, Seth. The issue we have is that we, as a society, have undervalued water generally and specifically for drinking water. Historically, because, especially in this region, because it's hard to look out at a Great Lake and think, oh, this is a precious, finite resource. (laughs) But it is. And so... What we've seen, and especially since Flint happened, is that people are more and more now understanding that by undervaluing that, we haven't really paid enough attention to helping people understand our own drinking water. And when I was a kid growing up in Western Michigan, I lived in the country. I understood what a well was because when you have a well, your parents are telling you, you can't pitch stuff out in the yard, that affects what we drink. And we're getting more and more away from that understanding of how all of these resources are connected and connected to us. And so I think in cities in particular, where we've been trusting our municipalities and other water providers, we ha- we just haven't been able to pay enough attention to how all of that is being delivered, how it's being purified, how it's coming through the pipes, and then how we pay for that. And so you have communities like Flint and Detroit and Benton Harbor that are paying huge amounts of some of their residents' household income to maintain water that may not even be healthy for them anymore. And so that's where we really started to step into this to say, okay, how can we be helpful to help communities understand the particular issues that they're dealing with in terms of their drinking water, whether that's affordability or it has PFAS or lead or some other issue. And of course, they all overlap too. When you have lead, when you have PFAS, you are automatically increasing cost and therefore decreasing affordability. Part of what we've really been thinking about and working with people on the ground in those cities is how do we help expand the thinking about drinking water? We don't just want the sources, the systems to fix this without community input because it's our water, we're drinking it. What do we want it to be? And how can we bring ideas to the table to make sure that is what we're getting? We hear oftentimes from our 
system operators that we're not customers, we're rate payers. <laughs> so they think of us in a particular way, and we're trying to change that too, because we're more than customers or rate payers, actually. We're part of the system. We're an integral part of the system. We own part of the pipes, homeowners and landlords. We own part of the pipes that are in the system. And we all have to understand how this works. So that's part of what we really are trying to do. We're trying to address problems as they're occurring in those local places, but also at the same time, ensuring that there's local um, thinking, there's local leadership that includes the municipal systems and the residents. To give an example of Slay, because we don't want Flint to always be the place that people say, we don't want to be the next Flint. We want people to say, we want to be the next Flint. <laughs> and one of the ways trying to help with that is we work with a group called the Flint Development Center locally. We've been working with them for since the crisis started. And what we heard from their kids is that this felt like nobody was caring and that there was no one that residents there could trust during this crisis to tell them what was really happening. And so <clears throat> as we sat with community members and elders over more than a year, what we were really hearing was to, in order to create a trust so that people don't have to rely on bottled water for everything they do in the future, we had to start with the youth. We had to work with youth because they understand some of these issues in ways that adults don't because they were raised during this problem. And also, they're trusted messengers in the community. And so we started working with youth to say, okay, if we were to be able to test homes with youth doing the science and the testing and the communicating, <clears throat> what could that mean? And so we started with a pilot project. We tested about 100 homes over a summer with about 15 young people in the community. And what we saw was residents coming to receive their results, crying because they had been out, feeling outside the system. They felt like they didn't have any information they could trust to know how to protect their family, their children. And they came to these meetings where we would explain what was happening with their individual water. And there was such a sense of relief that whether or not there was still lead there, at least they had information about how to move forward for their game. And so based on that, now we have worked with the Flint Development Center and have something called Flint Community Water Lab, where young people now do work training and participate in an actual scientific on-the-ground water lab in Flint with Flint residents running it for Flint residents so mm. that they can have for free their water tested as often as they want so that they can fix maybe problems that are still existing in their home if they might have lead pipes still in the house. Also, we know that when the pipes were replaced in Flint, only the residential um, homes were fixed and not even large apartment complexes. So there are a lot of places, churches, institutions, schools, that still have lead pipes 
So we are working with them through this lab as well to make sure that we can figure out how to rectify. So all of that is the way we work. We want to be engaged in the community, but in a supportive role, listening, and then helping them meet their own goals for how they move forward. And we think this lab is just so innovative. It's the first of its kind in the world where a community has its own lab run by its own private dollars that can do the kind of science to help its own residents. It's not run by the city. It's run by a community, a nonprofit. And it's just, it's so cool to see that have come into being um, and now be utilized. About 125 homes are analyzed every week. And it's just so cool to see what the result is when the community itself is able to say, this is what we need. Let's figure out a way to make that happen. And now as leaders in this citizen science for water quality, um, they're hoping to make that the new vision of right? Where everybody wants a lab. (laughs) And everybody wants to be able to answer those scientific questions from within. Thank you so much. Yeah, wonderful stories. And I get to speak to a lot of people who are just deeply embedded and deeply invested in this movement work. And movement work is so different than working nine to five. It's in many ways, it's dream work for us because it's guided by values that are very near and dear to us. It's meaningful. You get to meet all these amazing people who care. And it's also difficult to shut off the work and to sort of tend to one's wholeness as a person beyond their role in the movement. And so this is a piece that I think is really important for young folks getting involved in the movement to hear from people like us who've been in it for a while. What do you do to really get in touch with your wholeness, to to contribute to your health and wellness so that you can remain in the movement work and not be consumed by it? Yeah, that's such an important question, Seth. Wow. Um, It's, I want to address that from two perspectives. One is me personally, and one is for our organizations. So for me personally, I find it really critical to find times where I leave it completely. So I have to settle aside times where I do not answer my cell phone and I do not check email. And there is someone else responsible for taking all the calls so that I can get back into nature and reconnect because we, yeah, it's critical for us to be in touch with whatever natural, spiritual connection so that we're able to keep up this level of work because it is hard and it can be hard on the soul when we're looking at the policies and the practices that are happening to individuals, our friends, neighbors, and not be able to make the level of fixes we want in the timeline we want. And so we have to be able to take that time away. But in addition to that, it's also really key be able to put it in perspective. I think I hear from a lot of young people coming into the movement, oh my gosh, you know so much about the things that need to be fixed. How do you keep a positive outlook? And I think one of the really helpful things for me is the perspective. So we have to be able to look back 
and see the things that have been great successes. Yeah. We have to make sure we're celebrating those in the moment. Yeah. We get so caught up in the fact that people really need change and they really need it now. But there is a limit to how much we can do and still be able to carry that forward. Yeah. And so it's taking the time to celebrate those successes with our friends. Um, we just had a celebration for nine amazing heroes that we have as an organization. Mm-hmm. It, taking the time to recognize that important work and celebrate that is is really critical for me and I think for us as a movement to make sure we're doing that. And then being able to put all of this in perspective, I, I'm reading right now a book called The Nine, and it's about women who survived concentration camps. Mm-hmm. And even though that sounds like a real down book, it's actually critical to see the stories they told more toward the end of their lives and all the amazing things they accomplished because they made it through those hard times and then kept going. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's another important piece is looking at what others have done and how hard it might have been through different struggles, mm-hmm. but how big of a difference came up of that. Um, yes. Yeah, so that's my personal. <laughs> and then from our organizational perspective, we're also really trying to take organizational health and individual health together. So, for example, we do a year-long series, Water Watchers and Wellness, where we invite individuals and groups in <clears throat> to come together 90 minutes a month, which <laughs> Is a commitment. But when we come together, we do personal wellness. So we have a trainer come in and help us to decompress and give us tools for decompressing. And we spend 30 minutes on that. And then we spend about 30 minutes on an organizational topic, how to keep our books current or how to fundraise, those sorts of things. And then we spend about 30 minutes networking and talking and sharing with each other. And so it's trying to balance our programs, too, in ways that help all those 2,000 groups be able to, to have models for how do we present ourselves and create space for personal wellness, at the same time creating that space for organizational wellness and sustainability. Yes, this is inspiring, and it's, it makes sense, too, that you all are spending time on this. I've seen a lot of wonderful activists and groups almost get sidelined for long periods of time due to burnout. And so that's just a really important topic. And I think within this topic too, is just the reality of expectations and disappointment. So how do you manage your expectations and your disappointment? I think you touched on some of it with just having a perspective of people throughout history who have done really difficult things and come through it. But how else do you work with this? Yeah, that's a really important piece. I think I'll put it in the format of how sometimes people begin to engage with us as an organization. Okay. Often the first way we meet people is they call us up. We won't have known them, but they've gotten by word of mouth that we do this work. And so they'll call and they need someone to hear what's happening in their backyard. So it might be the air is being contaminated by 
a refinery or their children are sick and they don't know why or a wetland is being filled and they don't know how to participate in that process. And so often there are lots of tears. It's a long conversation. They expect that there is a solution like we can just fix this for them or that there's a government agency that if they just know the right things to say, this will stop. And the unfortunate reality is that it's not that easy ever. But what we've learned over the years with these conversations is that although we have to tell people that this expectation they have is not realistic, we also talk to them about we're all working together on this. And there are lots of other people dealing with similar issues that we can connect them to. And there are some processes that they're not going to be fast, <laughs> but there are ways to move toward getting the solutions they're looking for. And I think it's that sort of pulling us all together that helps us keep our reality in check and feel like we're not alone, that even when it's difficult and even when the solutions take a long time, there are lots of folks working on this in, in different ways that all pull together the different pieces of the puzzle that we have to fix. And as long as we can see more than our piece, I think it becomes easier. And especially when we can see others who are working toward those same ends. So to me, it is really that expectation that we're not going to win them all and we're not going to win immediately, but that together we're going to solve this. And we have to have that faith and hope. Yeah. And that's really what keeps me going, is knowing that there are so many passionate people on the ground. And what I always tell people, and this works whether it's fundraising or it's the campaign you're working on, it's a numbers game. So yeah. you have to be willing to take a number of no's and then you're going to get a yes. And then you're going to get another yes. And so we have to just put in perspective, I might have to take 10 no's before I get a yes. But when I get that yes, it's going to be so important. And then that's going to build into more. And so it's really that, we're all doing this together. And that person who says yes, whatever they're saying yes to, is going to become an ally alongside. Mm. And so it's building that, our group of allies, and be able to communicate with them and then flow that out to more and more people who are having similar struggles and want to help to build this voice. And really, we have a whole program that's called Voice <laughs> because at the end of the day, that's what we're really doing is we're raising the voices of the 42 million people that rely on drinking water out of our Great Lakes mm. to say we have a vision for this and we want to participate in creating that. Yes. What a beautiful perspective. And I love that you brought up the numbers game too, because it's just about doing the work and returning to the work. And as a songwriter, it's the same. It's like I can be disappointed and frustrated with my process, but not every song I write is going to be a great song or a song that I want to record or perform live. I just have to keep doing the work. 
and then bringing up beloved community is just such a it's such a lifeboat for us in perilous times and just to recognize and be inspired by people who keep returning to the work and remain dedicated and i think of so many elders for me that have set that example too and that helps me keep going to recognize you know i have elders who helped empower me and they didn't win them all and they didn't quit when they lost absolutely yeah yeah so so let's talk a little bit about arts and culture. You're the lead sponsor of the Water is Life Festival that we participate in at the Straits of Mackinac every Labor Day weekend. And arts and culture is a big part of what I bring to the movement. How do you see the role of arts and culture as important within the movement as an individual and also with, within Freshwater Future and your partners? Yeah, I see it. It's so important because without that connection to arts and culture, I mean, it's difficult for many of us to even connect to our spirituality, I think, that hope for the long term, because it's such a great way to be able to connect. And artists help us have what I think of as a conduit to to that long-term vision for the world. And if I may, I've really been listening to one of your songs lately, a recent song, 2020 Vision. I really, I love that song. And I just think you've given me a way to hear and think about expressing some of the things that I'm going through contemporaneously with you releasing that song. And so I think it's really critical for us to try to integrate arts and culture into our work. And it's also critical to recognize the important communication tool that art is. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a great way, whether it's songs, spoken word, right, painting. There are so many ways of cre- communicating beyond the technical that we tend to get into as professionals and stuck in. But when we can relax that, and bring in arts and culture, it makes it so much more rich and appeals to so many more people. So I really see that as key. And one of the other pieces about it is this is a really important method for our youth right now. I think. Our youth are hurting. COVID plus all of the divides that we have, digital divides and social media splitting people and All of those things are making it so hard for young people right now. But one of the things that our partners have recognized is arts and culture is so important. And so we try to support all of that, whether that's through having someone perform song or a written or a spoken word piece on our meetings, really just trying to integrate all of those things so that we're looking not just from one perspective, opening up our perspective by listening to arts and culture. So I guess that's how I think about it. I I love music and I'm not a great musician, but that is one of the ways I've really related throughout my life to our natural world as well as my spirituality. And so I just think we have to be able to integrate that more going forward if we're going to grow our movement beyond 
requires it. Yeah. And so I, I see so many opportunities here. And I just want to give a shout out to the Water is Life Festival and Janan Cornstalk because it's such a beautiful vision that she has and that she has shared with all the people who come together for the festival. And so we're really so pleased to be a tiny part of that in, in sponsoring her work and the work of the group. So yeah, we're, we see that as a model, actually. She has figured out this great way to, to integrate this into this amazing mm. event every year. Yes. Beautifully said. And thank you so much. What an honor that you're listening to my music. One of my heroes is Woody Guthrie. And I think about a quote that he said, basically expressing that his greatest aspiration as a folk singer is for his work to help you do your work. And that's how I feel. It really is. It's like winning a Grammy, hearing that my work might be helping you do your work, because that's truly what I'm here for. So thank you. Absolutely. It's true. And I really appreciate that you spend your part of your time focused on creating that music that I think does touch lots of us and supports our work. Thank you. Onward. More songs and more work to protect the water. Absolutely. One more question for you today, Jill, and it's about music. And this is a fun one. If you could wave a magic wand and be able to see any artist throughout history, it live, who would you choose? This is a really, really tough one for me. I have to say it would be, it wouldn't be just one artist, but it would be um, being able to be at Woodstock <laughs> because all of those artists have had such profound impact on my life. I've seen Arlo Guthrie in person. I love he and his father. And there were so many others that were on that stage and able to bring together thoughts in a similar struggle. We're struggling with water right now, but there's a war happening. And that stage was at a time when we were really struggling with our country's role in the world and war and all of those things. And so I think that's really what I would want to participate in is having men fly on the wall at that concert to to just drunk in all of that amazing art and what created it, which is the social fabric that we try to weave and repair that is strengthened and weakened over time at different points in our history. And I think we're we're at a similar time now. I would love to see a Woodstock type concert bring us back together. <laughs> great choice yeah thank you so much jill what a pleasure and thank you so much for your work where can people learn more about it thank you seth yes so we're at freshwaterfuture.org online we love to talk to people so you can find how to reach us there and we would love to hear from new communities that are having water issues and want to be part of this broader set of people doing similar work thank you so much keep up the good work thank you so much i appreciate it
State of Water is powered by the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign represents an opportunity to help place clean water issues front and center by partnering with environmental organizations across the state, by educating voters, and by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life who share a similar priority, protection of our water. Both State of Water and the Clean Water Campaign are programs of the Michigan-based nonprofit Title Track. Their mission engaging creative practice to build resilient social ecological systems that support clean water, racial equity, and youth empowerment. <laughs>